Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at Amen. Good morning. You can be seated. At this time, we're going to dismiss the uh, little Pentecostals uh, in the church, the, the three to five-year-olds. Uh, they can. I'm sorry if you've got a Pentecostal background, but... Um, but they can go to their class and, uh, and they'll head out. For the rest of us, uh, if you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and grab them. Uh, either open them up or turn them on, whatever uh, version or form of a Bible that you're using. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 today. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses um, of this passage as we talk about the resurrection of Jesus. And obviously, that's going to be the message. I mean, this is Easter. This is Resurrection Sunday. We're going to be looking at the resurrection of Christ. And we're going to be looking at the significance of this and why it is so important for us to not only just draw attention to this annually, but to also just draw attention to this daily in our lives as we just live. Because this is all of Christianity hinges on whether or not Jesus rose from the grave. All of it hinges on this singular event. And that's why I want to look at this passage, because that's exactly what Paul is doing in preaching to this church in Corinth, is he's calling them back to remember this significant news. Because he wants to remind them of who they are in Christ, who they are as a church, and the very means by which they exist as a church. They exist as Christians, they exist as believers, is on this singular truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so for us today, this isn't going to be, um, honestly, anything that you've not heard before if you've attended an Easter service in the past. And if you're a believer in here and you attend church regularly, again, this is not going to be anything new. I I don't have uh, some refreshing new spin on the Easter message uh, I remember, you know, kind of in my early years, um, I took a class on, on preaching, and that class on preaching, um, for whatever reason, one of the professors said, you need to keep your best sermon for Easter. And then I remember one of the students actually kind of challenging that and being like, that, that kind of puts a lot of pressure on one Sunday, on one sermon to be preached. And he said, well, then you're kind of missing the point. If you hold everything on what you preach on Easter and then let that be the foundation for everything that you preach from there on out, it's all preaching the same thing. It's all preaching the good news of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. And we then apply that to literally every sermon that we preach every single week. So you want to be a good husband and a good wife? It comes back to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You want to be a good neighbor, it comes back to this good news. You want to be a good parent, it comes back to this. You want to be a good co-worker or business owner or whatever it looks like, it comes back to this good news. It comes back to Jesus taking away your sins, which makes you a terrible husband, a terrible spouse, a terrible friend, a terrible co-worker, a terrible fill-in-the-blank. He removes that sin and he forgives you and he cleanses you and he raises you to a new life so that we can actually live out righteously how to be a husband that is like Christ, a wife that is like Christ, a co-worker that is like Christ. We can't do those things if it's not for the news of Jesus Christ and what he has purchased for us, what he has done for us. 
And so that's why we want to just remind ourselves every single week of this good news of Jesus and as we will do today. So I'm just going to walk through this passage with you so that, again, our minds, our hearts will just be renewed and that we will continue to worship Jesus in this way. Starting in verse 1, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, that's an important couple of verses in Scripture right there. Those two verses, they say a lot. And we're going to come back to them because Paul is doing, or what he's doing here, is he's wanting to provide assurance of faith for the church in Corinth. He's wanting to remind them of the only thing that allows them to stand and that allows them to be saved. He's reminding them of the reason for why they exist as a church. He's reminding them of the power of the gospel. And this is what Easter represents for us as well. It just reminds us of the truth that we hope to never forget. And that's why he begins it with, let me remind you. Why does he have to remind them? Because we as humans, we're, we're prone to forget, are we not? Like how, how much, you don't have to, this is rhetorical, so don't answer this, but how much money is, your, is in your bank account right now? To the cent. You don't know because you've already forgotten. Do you know where your birth certificate is right now? Okay, maybe some of you do if you're responsible, all right? Some of us have to, like, call their mom, right? Like, how many of you know what your GPA was when you graduated high school or college? Maybe some of you, if you're proud of it. But for others, we want to forget those things, right? If you know all three of those things right now to the cent, like, there's something wrong with you. But that's the side point. We are prone to forget things. And that's why the Apostle Paul here is drawing their attention back because they're prone to forget. We, we get caught up in the busyness of life. We get caught up in the work-life balance that we have. We get caught up in these things and we forget the most foundational principles and truths that should actually define our lives, that we should actually be living by. And so he wants them to be reminded. And again, I'm going to come back to these two verses because I believe they're profound and necessary for us to know what it means to really hold fast to the word that he preached unless you believed in vain. That, that truth is important in being able to receive, stand, and be saved by the gospel in order for it to be our reality. So the question I hope you're asking in your mind is, if it's so important to remind us of this gospel, what is this gospel? What is this gospel if it is necessary to be reminded of? Well, we see it in verse 3, starting here. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. 
So whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. And so I want to walk through six points that are just walking through this passage here. Six points that are drawing our attention, that are, that are pulling our minds back to remember the significance of each of these things. Because all together, it's the good news. But even individually, each of these points just have so much to do with your daily life. How you follow Christ, how you live in Christ, and how you spread this news as you encounter others. And so the first point that I want you to see is that Christ is of first importance. Like if we were to end history right now, and someone were to ask, what was the one thing that we should remember? Like if there were to be like one last newspaper that was going to be printed with a headline on it to sum up all of history and to draw attention to the greatest headline that has ever existed, what would the headline be? According to God, the headline for all of human history would be this one thing. Of first importance, the main thing is that Christ lived a perfect life, that he died a death, and that he was buried, and that he rose again three days later. That would be, according to God, the greatest thing that has ever happened in all of human history. That's why Paul says this is of first importance. Now, everything else pales in comparison. The headline's not going to read the, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. The headline's not going to be uh, the independence of the United States from the Great Britain. Like, it's not going to be that. It's not going to be the building of the Great Pyramids. It's not going to be your political party that won an election. It's not going to be any of those things that we at times think are the greatest thing that we might have experienced. But rather, the headline's going to read that the God-man, Jesus Christ, came... And he lived a perfect life. He died the death that we deserved. And three days later, he rose from the grave. This is the most important thing and greatest of importance to all of humans. Literally, all of human history literally hinges on this event. I mean, we, we respectively gauge time by the person of Jesus Christ. Before Christ, in A.D., Anno Domini, the year of the Lord. I mean, everything hinges on Jesus. Everything. And not only just our human history, but our eternity hinges on the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's important, and that's why he is saying it is of first and greatest importance. As Ron Burgundy quotes, of himself, I'll paraphrase, Jesus is kind of a big deal here. All right? He's kind of a big deal. He should not be merely an add-on to your work-life balance. And this is kind of where we're kind of, I'm going to throw some application in here. Because Jesus is of first importance, I hope we do not manage our relationship with Jesus like we manage the relationships we have with everyone else. Because at best, if you're a really close friend with someone else in our busyness of our culture and whatnot, you might get to see them once a week, once every other week, and you have to schedule those meetings out. If you got children, you got to work that out. Like, there's so many things that you have to work out in order to just see someone else, to be able to relate with them, to be in their lives and have them in their life, to be able to be honest with one another and actually share what's going on in your life and what's not going on in your life. Like, it takes work, but at best, you might see someone once a week, maybe twice a week. 
That's not the way it is with Jesus. And I hope that's not the way that we're gauging our relationship with him. Because he is of first importance, he is not someone that we schedule time to be with, maybe once a day, maybe once every few days when we think about it or when it fits our work-life balance, but rather he should be the relationship that defines all of our work-life balance. He should be the relationship that is informing all of those things so that when we wake up in the morning and we're looking at our schedule for the day, we're running it by Jesus and saying, does this look good in a schedule that's going to honor you and glorify you in all things? Whether I'm eating or drinking or whatever I'm doing, as 1 Corinthians says, do we let him define our relationships and our lives as if he is of first importance? Or do we get to him whenever it's convenient and important to us. That one's a hard one to hear. But what Jesus does for us is he promises something for us, and this is good news. He promises something for us that no other person in this room can promise you, even your spouses. He promises, I, can be, I will be with you always to the end of the age. Because of the good news, because of his life, because of his death, because of his resurrection. When we enter into relationship with him, that, that was the, the whole point of what we looked at on Friday night in Good Friday, was him bearing, his, bearing our sins on the cross that created the chasm between us and God. The reason why he took our sins on the cross and was put to death was so that he could bridge that chasm and bring us back to God in relationship. And the way that that relationship works is that God tells us through Jesus Christ, I'm going to be with you always. No one else can promise you that. No one. And so we can have assurance of faith in Christ that wherever we go, Jesus is with us. To be able to always talk to him, to be able to always lean on him, to be able to always ask for his wisdom, to be able to always ask for his shoulder to cry on, to be able to always just need him and use him whenever we need him for power and strength to be able to get through the lives that we are living. And in that way, we actually have life abundance. Christ is always with us because he is of first importance. No other religious leader can promise that. Like no other religious leader of other world religions can promise what Jesus has promised to his followers. That I will be with you always. Muhammad cannot promise that to Muslims. Joseph Smith cannot promise that to Mormons. Abraham cannot promise that to Jews. You can, like Moses couldn't promise that. No other world religious leader can promise what Jesus has, has literally offered for us and has executed for us in his resurrection. You can go visit the graves of everybody that I've mentioned, except for Moses, because no one knows where his grave is. God hid him somewhere in the rocks on the side of a mountain, and you can search that on your own. It's pretty fascinating, but no one knows. Everyone else, you can go see their tomb. Jesus' tomb, you go visit it, it's empty because of what we're celebrating today. So that's the first point. Jesus is of first importance. The second point, verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. Again, this is what we celebrated on Good Friday at the gathering on Friday night. We read 1 Peter 2, 22-25, and I want to read it again for you. 
He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and that we might live to righteousness. That's everything I'm talking about. Like that's the hope that we have in this good news is that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And the only way that that happens is through the power of Christ bearing our sins and putting them to death on the cross. He died for our sins. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep that stray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Christ's death was a substitution for the death that we owe God. He paid it all as we sang. When Jesus died on the cross, he did not say, I did my part to save you. Now you go and do yours. That's not what he said. On the cross, he says, the work is finished. The work is finished. That's why this is a gift. That's why this is grace that God extends to us. There's nothing that we have to do to earn this good news that comes to us. There's nothing that we have to do in order to make sure that he bears our sins on the cross. It is a gift for us. And he says in John 19.30, it's finished. He kills your sin by becoming sin and allowing God's wrath to crush him and kill him. And we all fit in that category of sinners that have placed him there on the cross. Romans 3.23 is clear about that. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I looked it up in the Greek to see what all meant, and it means all. Like, it's everyone. We're all in that same boat. And you're like, no, my precious baby that's born, like, they're a little angel. Just wait. Just wait. We are all sinners in need of saving grace. And that's why Jesus came to substitute himself. Because we are deserving of death. We're deserving of God's wrath. And he takes it for us on the cross. And he bears the weight of God's wrath in our place. So that that wrath towards us could be diverted away. Placed on Jesus. And then in return... God grants us and gives us the righteousness of Jesus. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. One of my favorite verses. You hear me preach it all the time or, or just say it all the time that he who knew no sin, like it says here, he committed no sin. He who knew no sin, he was perfect in his life. He became sin. He became you and went to the cross so that you and I might then become his righteousness. The righteous for the unrighteous. Martin Luther calls it the great exchange. The great substitution. And that's exactly what Jesus purchased for us at the cross. That's the second point. The third point is that he was buried. That he was buried. People oftentimes call this Silent Saturday. Like, what are we doing on Saturday while Jesus is buried? We're just sitting in the silence. But there's significance in the fact that Jesus needed to be buried. God literally held a funeral for your sin. That's what's going on. It's a funeral for your sin. I want you to think about that. God put Jesus in the grave for three days to guarantee that sin was dead once and for all. That Jesus didn't merely pass out on the cross and then wake back up a little later. 
That's actually a theory out there called the swoon theory, that they believe that he just passed out for a little while and that he came back, uh, he just woke up from his nap. That's what a lot of people try to preach in order to uh, disprove the resurrection. And so God said, I'm going to make sure that they realize that he's dead, dead. And the swoon theory, knowing what they did in beating him, and torturing him, and nailing him to a cross, like it's going to take a little longer. If you were just napping, and you're just waking up from that, and you're just, you're not God, but you're just this man who everyone believed to be the Son of God, if he's just a man and was napping and woke up, it's going to take him a little longer than 40 days to recover from what they did in order for him to fix some breakfast for Peter on the, on the shore just a few weeks later in order to restore him after he denied him three times. It takes a resurrection from the dead to be able to do what Jesus did. He was buried. And not only that, but his burial, this, this, this is just him according to the scriptures fulfilling what was already prophesied. Isaiah 53, 9 talks about the fact that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. So that had to happen. And it's true, he was. He was buried in a rich man's tomb. It's also to fulfill the illustrations that we see in the Old Testament of Jonah being in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. That, that is to fulfill the fact that this illustration is coming true in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who is actually ultimately providing salvation for all of us. And so that's the third point. Jesus was buried. The fourth point is that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The resurrection from the dead is the sealed assurance that we all need to believe Jesus is truly the Son of God. Is truly the Son of God. If the whole thing was taken to a world court and the lawyer was testifying on behalf of Jesus saying he was the Son of God, this is the clinching and final statement. It's the clenching and final statement that wins it for Christianity every single time. Because before Jesus died and resurrected, whenever he would go out and ask a simple question, who do the people say that I am? A lot of them would just give references of great prophets, great teachers. Just a, you're just an all around, just a great person. But the only way that you can actually prove to be the son of God is if you die and then you show that you are greater than death and you come back from it. Up until this point, that's what they're warring with in their soul. Is whether or not Jesus, if he dies, will he come back to life? And he's essentially preaching and telling them, you're going to kill me because of the claim that I'm about to make. I am God. I am God, and I have the ability and the authority to forgive sins by what I'm going to do on the cross. And they're all looking at him like, you're a madman, you're crazy. So what we're going to do is we're going to put you to death, because what you're saying, if you're not God, by claiming to be God, that's blasphemy. And that actually is lawful for them to put someone to death based upon that. So they're saying, if you're God, we're going to put it to the test. We're going to kill you. We're going to crucify you. And if you, come back to, if you come back to life, then maybe there was something to it. 
Maybe we actually didn't miss it. And we just killed God. And that's exactly what they did. God uses our sin. I mean, this is what blows my mind. Because Satan thinks he won. Satan's whole thing is, let me get Jesus out of the way. And the very thing that Satan uses in his mind to defeat Jesus is the thing that defeats Satan. I'm going to kill Jesus, not realizing that by killing him, I'm actually playing into God's entire plan from the beginning. That I am going to kill my son, and I'm going to put all the sins of the world on him, and that three days later, because my wrath is satisfied towards all of your brokenness, and all of your sins, and all of your bad thoughts, and everything that you have done that is straying like sheep from the Lord, that's not living a life of righteousness, all of those things placed on Jesus because his wrath is satisfied, Jesus no longer has to remain dead. Because the wrath of God is satisfied. Therefore, the authority that God has to literally speak things into existence, to create life, he is able to look at Jesus dead in the grave and resurrect him on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And here's why that's good news for us is because Jesus, as it says, he's the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. I want you to see this because this, this is the big kind of question that the church in Corinth had and that they're kind of wrestling with, and that their culture was wrestling with, it's just this idea of resurrection. A lot of them did not believe that there would be a resurrection. And so Paul just attacks it and dives into it. So where you're at, jump down to verse 12 in 1 Corinthians 15, and you'll see this play out, where Paul really wants to just elaborate on this one point here about the resurrection. He says, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. It's all meaningless if he didn't raise from the dead. We are even found to be mis misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Essentially, he's saying, like, if, if Christ has not been raised, then the whole thing's a sham. The whole thing doesn't mean anything if he's still in the grave. And then technically, if he's still in the grave, the wrath of God is not satisfied, your sins are still in place. Your sins have not been taken care of. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. What he's essentially saying is if they're believing in Christ and Christ never raised from the dead and they're being persecuted for it, they of all people should be the most pitied because they're not living it up while they're living in this kind of mere existence, and then nothing happens when they die. Like, if, if Christ does not raise from the dead, and this is all there is, then do what you want. 
Do what you want. Live how you want. Try to live it up because this is the closest thing that you're going to get to a proverbial heaven that possibly exists if Jesus did not raise from the grave. If he was not the Son of God. If he did not do what he said he came to do. Then Christianity is the worst hobby that you could possibly find in this world. There's so many other better things to do then do what we do if Jesus did not raise from the grave. That's what Paul is getting at. But he says in verse 20, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And that's just another way of saying those who have died. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. What he's saying there is, by a man, Adam, came death for everybody. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, the way in which sin is passed down is through the seed of man. So if you're born from a father and a mother, you're a sinner. And I don't care how much our culture right now is trying to restructure science. Biology works between a man and a woman having relations and bearing a child. Sin is passed down through those relations. And there's no one in this room who has not been born from a man and a woman. Who have had relations. You are sinners because through Adam, everyone has sinned. And what he's now saying is that through one man, Jesus, everyone is able to become righteous. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Christ is the first fruit of the resurrection to this new glorified state, this new glorified body. And then at his second coming, we all get that same body. We all get that same glorified body that I know, and I know y'all know that I joke about this all the time, but for those over the age of 27, you're looking forward to a glorified body. You're looking forward to that day where you don't dislocate your shoulder when you're sleeping at night, when you don't have any pain, when you're not popping ibuprofen like candy on a regular basis. Like you, you're just looking forward to that day where you don't have to experience pain anymore. Where you don't have to experience just loss anymore, tears anymore. You don't have to worry about any of those things, fear of losing a loved one ever again, because death has been taken care of. In that glorified body, we will never experience death ever again. Ever. But rather, all we get to experience is joy and life to the fullest for eternity. That's what the resurrection guarantees for us in Christ Jesus. And that's the fourth point. God raised Jesus from the grave. Because he has defeated death and he is raised to this new life, this new glorified state that he promises for each one of us who believe in him. The fifth one is that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, who is his brother, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Why did Jesus think it necessary to appear to us after he rose from the grave? Because it then establishes the method by which 
God is spreading his gospel. That he is spreading his good news. It's going to be delivered through witnesses. Through witnesses. And in our case here, it's literally delivered through eyewitnesses. Paul here is delivering his witness testimony of him meeting the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. Peter's letter, letters that we looked at in First and Second Peter are him delivering his eyewitness testimony that Jesus did, in fact, raise from the grave and appear to Peter after the fact for 40 days, ministering to Peter during that time, restoring him back to his ministry. I love the Apostle John's opening of his letters. This is what he says in 1 John 1, 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of the life, that is Jesus, the life that was made manifest, that came to the world. We have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. What he's saying is, the greatest thing for us to do is share this good news of Jesus Christ, whom we've heard from, whom we've seen, whom we've touched after his resurrection. We are sharing this news so that you would believe and be brought back to God and enter into this fellowship that we have with God, who is with the Father and with the Son. We're with all of them. We're just enjoying relationship with Him. And it, that is the greatest thing that we get to experience in this life, this side of glory, is sharing this news and seeing people believe in Him and come to know Him and have their sins forgiven, have their shame taken away, have their guilt dealt with, and have their death paid for once and for all. Like, that's what he's preaching, and that's what gets so exciting about sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, is because you see people go from death to eternal life in Christ forever. I mean, when you wrap your mind around that, that sharing this good news that Paul is sharing, that is drawing our attention to, that is saying this is the most important thing that you could possibly experience and remember... When you share it with someone else and the light bulb goes off and faith comes alive and they believe in Jesus Christ for the first time, what you are witnessing is not only in the here and now them having some hope, but also witnessing that their eternity and their eternal destination has changed. You've changed their address. They're no longer going to hell, but they're now going to heaven. That they're going to be able to experience life with Christ forever. And that's why he's able to say this, this completes our joy. Like we have joy in Christ, but what completes it even that much more is that we get to see others come to Christ. We get to bring other people into this. I mean, how about our poor doubting Thomas and the way that he looks at it in John 20, 24 through 29. Like there's some in this room right now who are like, I don't know. I don't know. That's where Thomas was. Thomas the twin. That's where he was. This is what he says. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, okay, like he was with Jesus for three years. One of the twelve, called the twin, was, was not with them when Jesus came. This is after the resurrection. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. 
But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I am never going to believe. Man, like he sounds like a joy to be around, right? <laughs> Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. I love this. I don't know why this is in there. Maybe it's, if I had a, if I had a, a superpower, it would be teleportation. Like, I just would love to be able to teleport. Don't know why, I just, I would love to. And, and this, is, this is the only hope I have in the scriptures that in our glorified bodies, we get to teleport. It literally says, oh, no, I gotta find my place. I lost it. Hold on. Okay, verse 26. Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. I just love that. Like, doors were locked, and he just shows up. I think he teleported in there. And I think that's just one of the side points to file away in the glorified body is that we're going to get to do this. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, always kind of just a little bit of, of constructive criticism, if you will. Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's you and me. And I think that's in the story for those who have that posture of, I got to stick my finger in the hole in order to be able to see whether or not Jesus actually is alive I gotta see it with my eyes I gotta taste it I gotta feel it and he did that he answered that for Thomas and I think that's in there so that for those who need kind of that hard evidence are able to see this eyewitness testimony that it happened it happened for someone who struggled in that way but for us today, we don't have that privilege of going back 2,000 years ago in those 40 days after his resurrection to be able to interact with Jesus during that specific time before he ascended into heaven. But what we do have is what's been going on for the last 2,000 years is this eyewitness testimony that's been recorded down into scriptures and has then been going out for the last 2,000 years, and has been spreading. People sharing this news that Jesus lived a perfect life, that he died a death that you and I deserve, and that three days later he came back from the grave, defeating death and sin and evil once and for all, and guaranteeing for us that believe in him that the same thing will happen. We will be put to death in Christ, that we will be raised to a new life, and that we don't have to worry about the consequences of our sin anymore. That we get to live a life unto righteousness every single day in our relationship relationships that we have right now in our works that we have right now in everything that we do right now we can live unto righteousness we can glorify God we can worship him in everything whether it's word or drink whatever it is that we're doing we get to worship him because he's dealt with our sin once and for all we see the eyewitness testimony we believe we believe that he is who he says he is and so that's the last question that I want to finish with you that's the fifth point do you believe the gospel? Because it's the gospel, it's the good news, it's the grace of God, as he says in verse 10. 
By the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. I love this because it sounds like Paul's bragging. But he's not bragging based on what he can accomplish. He's bragging on what the grace of God has accomplished in his life. That he has taken him from a persecutor of the church and has so transformed him by this good news of Jesus Christ that it has now literally altered the life of Paul to where he's doing anything and everything in his work-life balance to make sure that the good news of Jesus Christ is being spread, is being preached, is being shared for others to have this one opportunity to believe. So back to verse 1 and 2. I said I was going to go back there. Let me remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. It's received. Not earned, received. Like when you've received something from someone, like maybe think, think birthday, all right? You're not doing anything on your birthdays to earn gifts that people give to you. On their own initiative, they're going out and they're thinking of you, they're purchasing gifts for you, and they're coming and bringing it to you. And you receive them and you open them up. And you believe that they're good friends who have helped you out. You know, they, they've done something nice for you. That's what we're doing here with the gospel, is that it is a gift that we receive. A free gift. Free to the point that Jesus on the cross says, it's paid for in full and it's finished. Nothing for you to do. It's done. Nothing for you to do. It's done. I think you just need to hear that again. And as you receive it, you're then able to stand in it, which is a signal of a resurrection. The reason why we baptize by immersion is because it's signifying the exact same thing that Jesus Christ has gone through in his personal life, death, and resurrection. That we are put to death in Christ. And that we are raised to walk, to stand in the newness of life. Standing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is what is saving us. That's what is saving us. Unless you believed in vain. The way Jesus' brother shares this news about whether or not you believed in vain, is he puts it this way. Because to be honest, James did not believe until post-resurrection. I mean, how hard would it be for you to convince your siblings that you're the son of God? Like, that's going to be kind of hard, right? So James was not a believer in Jesus until after the resurrection. And that's why it says in this account that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12 and then to over 500 believers. And then he eventually got to James. Like he finally got to James and convinced James, I, I wasn't lying. There's a reason why you were always at fault for the things that broke in our house because I never did anything wrong. Like that's what, like James is like, it makes sense now why I always get the beatings. But this is what James says. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? Well, you do well. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? 
What James is saying here is that there, there was this group of people, these Hellenistic Jews, who were saying that they believe in Jesus, but yet their lives showed no change. No dying to sin and living unto righteousness. That when they heard this news of what Jesus has done for them, they ascribed to it intellectually and said, that's good. I like that. But did not actually believe it unto salvation to the point that it changed their lives and changed the way that they scheduled out their work-life balance. That actually changed the way that they live their lives and do everything for the glory unto God, whether eating or drinking or whatever it is that you're doing. It changed them. The easiest way to say it is, if there's no change, there's no Jesus. If there's no change, there's no belief. There's no belief. Whether or not you believe in Jesus is going to be based on whether or not it changes your life. That it changes your affections. The way the Old Testament talks about this is that it removes the heart of stone and it gives you a living heart that is beating and and pumping blood that is coming from the foot of the cross, that is breathing life into you, that is honoring and worshiping God and bending you towards that direction rather than straying like sheep. There's going to be a change. And that change proves whether or not we believe. It doesn't earn anything. It's not something that is keeping your salvation. It's just proving whether or not it's legit. Proving whether or not you actually believe in him. How do you know if your belief is in vain? Echoing James and Paul here. You'll work harder than anyone by the grace of God to live and preach the gospel. That's what they're saying. You'll, you'll, as Paul said, you'll work harder than anyone. To put your sin to death and to live unto the righteousness of God. Because he's changed you. He's transformed you. He's saved you. By the grace of God given to you, the perfect sinless life of Jesus Christ, the substitutionary atoning death of Jesus, and finally the death defeating and assurance of faith producing resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you believe this good news for salvation? If you believe this news, what I want to do now is I want to invite you to join us in the greatest meal of all time. The Lord's Supper. When we commune together to remember this great news. To remember this great news that is of first importance. They always say that you know breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Communion is representing the most important meal of our lives. It's, it's feasting on the good news of Jesus Christ. That he is the bread of life for us. That's what we're celebrating in this. If, if today is one of those moments where you're like, you know what, I've, I've struggled with this throughout my life, whether or not this is true, whether this is legit, we're telling you, not just based on what Dwayne thought was just a good idea to share, but going to the scriptures of eyewitnesses who were with Jesus and who recorded these things inspired by the Holy Spirit to write them down and to pass them along for generations to come. They're wanting us to know that in our sin, 
God loves you. And he sent Jesus. Jesus left the comfort of heaven, the presence of angels, his authority sitting on the throne at the right hand of his father. He left that and he entered into the world. I mean, again, I know that what we believe is foolish when you wrap it all up. That God came down in the form of a baby, born of a virgin. Like you, when you go back to how I was talking about the biology of things, that doesn't make sense unless God does it. And God did it. The Holy Spirit gave Mary a child. And that child was born. And because that child was not born of an earthly father, sin did not pass down to him. And he then lived a perfect life, fully obedient to his father. Living out everything that we are supposed to earn. He did it exactly. He fulfilled all of the law, all of the Old Testament, all of the, I mean, we, when we talk about the law, you tend to think of the Ten Commandments. We're talking, there's over 600 laws that were throughout the Old Testament that you are to live by and abide by in order to be a standard of righteousness. And he did not miss one. He abided by all of it perfectly. He lived the perfect life that you're supposed to live, that you're called to live by God in order to be in relationship with him. Not only did he earn that perfect life and righteousness, but then he goes and he substitutes himself for us. The righteous becomes the unrighteous. And he dies the death on the cross that you and I deserve because we broke all the laws. He dies the death and he steps in our place and he absorbs the wrath of God. And he's put to death and he's buried. Our sin with him. And because the wrath of God was satisfied, God brings him back to life and resurrects him on the third day. And he appears. I mean, over 500 people. He appears to them. God did this. I'm back. I'm back. And I'm here to do the same thing for you. Believe me. Trust me. That's all he's asking. Believe me and trust me. And that's what we're asking. If you've never done that before today, if you believe, we're inviting you to this meal that's just representing him breaking his body and shedding his blood so that you could be brought back to God, so that you could be brought into the fellowship, so that you can have joy and life and life abundant, not only in the here and now, but for eternity. For eternity. Do you believe? And if you are believing for the first time today, we would love to know that. So if you've come with somebody, let them know so they can let us know. If you want to come find uh, myself or Josh or Ransford after, afterward, come find one of us and say, hey, you know what? I, I was blind, now I see. I, I didn't believe, now I believe. We would love to follow up with that in baptism, in growing in your relationship with Jesus being able to put to death your sin daily and to be able to walk in righteousness, to be able to be discipled in that way, we would love to follow up with that. But the first step, we'll invite you to this meal. And so let's stand together. If you do not have the elements, they're back there on that little black table. 
in the back. Please go and grab some, and we will come back, and we will celebrate Jesus together. The Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, letting them know what this meal signifies, what it illustrates. He says this to them, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is him giving them a way, just like Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians 15, giving them a way to, as often as you break this bread, you're remembering me breaking my body for you so that you don't have to go through that. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The only way to forgive sins is to have death be paid and, and the way that, that God has illustrated that throughout the entire Old Testament is through all these sacrifices of these animals where blood was shed to cover sins and it was always temporary. Because the only thing that could do it once and for all is it had to be a perfect sacrifice. A perfect human sacrifice that shed perfect blood to cover all sins. That's exactly what Jesus was, the perfect sacrifice in shedding his blood to forgive our sins and appease the wrath of God. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's worship him now together in proclaiming his death in the assurance that we have that three days later he also rose from the grave. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at